That's what's happening. I am excited to open the Word of God with you, but I, do you know that, um, you know that feeling of like, I'm about to do something that's going to be a total failure? Um, that's, uh, that's definitely, I'm, and I'm not just doing this so that you'll be like, hey, Mark, that was great. You know, you did better than you thought. Um, I just feel the weight this week of, I, like, we're talking about the Trinity, okay? And, uh, and talking about the Trinity, and this week specifically, we're talking about God the Father, and we're trying to kind of just get back to this sense of, like, re-engaging um, and understanding and really kind of throwing ourselves into some basic theological things. And it's, it's hard to talk about God the Father in a way that's not just, like, listing attributes or whatever. So um, it, here's, here's a couple quotes that I um, put together that was kind of, I think, me processing, like, why is this so tricky? A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I, I, think, he's, I think he's right, or really like close to right. I think he's right. That the idea that when we talk like God is like the, this concept that we all know about. Like the, I can't imagine anyone that doesn't have some conception of God is, what God is, even if they don't believe in him. Um, but what we think about, when we think about God, like what comes into our minds? What are we thinking about? What are we processing? And I, the only thing I'd add is just that idea of, what we throw our, our being into, like our allegiance towards when we think about God um, is so, so vital. And so this is important, what we're going to do. But here's, here's why this is so hard. Um, Elvis Costello, he's a musician, a great musician. And he, he would talk about like these critics that would write about the music that he was making. And he's saying like, it's kind of a hard thing to write about music. He says, writing about music is kind of like dancing about architecture, you know, you're like taking a different form, right? And, and so you're trying to use words to describe a musical thing. That's really hard to do. That's totally what I feel like when it comes to trying to get down to the essence of God the Father. How do we talk about him? Um, boy, words come short. And, and I feel like I'm a person that's kind of seen and experienced something. And, you know, you try to, you see something, it's real to you, it's powerful, but you know you've only seen just like a little glimpse. And then you're coming back and you're describing it to everybody else. And you kind of end with like, I guess you just kind of had to be there, you know, to experience it. And I think that's kind of what the whole Bible is like. It's like doing its best to tell us about who God is. But it's also sort of like you just kind of got to be there sometime. You got to experience it for yourself. And I feel like that's uh, what I'm after. Um, Her Her Herman Bavink is a uh, Dutch theologian um, from a while ago. And he says, there's no such thing as an adequate concept of God. There's no one who can give a definition of God that is adequate to his being. And he's right, but I'm going to try anyways, okay? <laughs> There's no way that you can, like, fully, like, get ourselves into this, um, this right, complete— Now, we can know things about God for sure. We're going to talk about it. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. But um, there's just this sense I have of, like, man, all—I I feel like the best we can do is point in a direction. Um, and so to do that, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Isaiah 40. I'll put the verses on the screen. But to do it, I, I chose Isaiah 40 to kind of get us into um, talking about God the Father because what I love about this passage is it uses a lot of different um, bits of imagery to point us towards who God is. And I think often that's the best we can do is to give, it, give a, like, a picture that we can get in our minds and say, God's kind of like that. You know, this says something true about who God is, and the picture kind of invites us into more and more and more. Um, but what we're trying to do is just come back to some basic truths. Our series, Hallowed Be Your Name, we're trying to just come back to some basic theological truths and just say, what, like, what's at the core of all this? Reminding ourselves um, of it and getting ourselves oriented to what we're doing when we're here and we're talking about God. The first thing I want to say before we even get into Isaiah 40, because, um, because Isaiah 40 is— um, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really address this side of things, and, and it's important for the next few weeks— 
God is a triune God, okay? So the concept of the Trinity, if you've been around the church for a while, like nothing, like we talk about the Trinity a lot, but nobody ever does a good job of explaining it, okay? And I, I had it worked out this week. I was going to explain it really well to you and decided that, no, that's like somebody else can do a good job. Maybe Nathan next week will um, de- define it for you really well. But the Trinity is so difficult, and yet I cannot get around. It is, it's everywhere in Scripture. Like, it's all, it's just assumed. It's the reality. God is three, but he's also one. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're talking about God This week, God the Father. Next week, God the Son. The week after that, God the Holy Spirit. And we have to see the the most basic assumption about God in the entire Bible, starting in um, Deuteronomy 6. It's this, the Shema. It's this really important part of of the the Hebrew law, the, the Jewish law that God gave. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Okay? This basic starting point is there is one God. He is one. And yet, you go through the Bible... And it begins to talk about God the Father. He's Yahweh. He's this one God. When Jesus comes on the scene, and we'll see this next week some, when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to be talked about, not as another God in addition to Yahweh of the Old Testament, but he's talked about as though he is Yahweh, which is really, really crazy. And this is part of why Jesus was put to death, is the Jews at the time just had no, no way they were going to allow this kind of talk about their God to be equated with who Jesus was. But that's just what the Bible does. God, there's only one God, and he exists, and we're talking about God the Father. That's him. And yet next week we get into talking about Jesus, and sure enough, like, yeah, he's different than God the Father, but he also is God the Father. And it's really tricky with your mind. And we find uh, then the, the week after that, we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit is, again, talked about. Like, this is who Yahweh is. He is God the Spirit as well. So at the core of it, this is why this is so hard. At the core of it, the most basic thing about God is a unity where he's one and a, um, uh, a variableness to it or a um, multiplicity in it. There's got to be a better word. Someone's written a book about it somewhere and it's better. But there's three and there's one. And that's at the core. That's the foundation. So it starts in this mysterious place and we build from there. This week, we're talking about the God the Father as the starting point of the Trinity, the starting of who God is, and this really fundamental piece of reality. And I'm, I'm really excited to do it. it just, we, we, we just need to come back to what, what I started last week is our posture can't be, we're going to figure this out. Our posture can't be, we're going to explain it perfectly. Our posture can't be, um, let's settle this. Our posture has to be a posture of worship. where We learn about God. Our hearts are um, pulled into who he is more, and we worship because of it. So after that really long preface, I want to pray as we open up Isaiah 40 that God would just really be with us. Lord, as we talk about you this morning, I sense just the, the deep inadequacy of words that I could say about you. And Lord, what I want more than anything is not to educate not to sort out, not to explain, but Lord, I just pray that we would all together be pointed to you. Um, Lord, I'm thankful I don't have to explain you fully. Lord, you are also here, present, and Lord, you can reach out to us, and I pray that you would do that. Lord, reach into our minds and explain to us. Lord, also reach beyond that into our hearts, and Lord, pull us towards yourself. I, I so deeply want each of us, and myself included this morning, to have an encounter with you and to talk about you like you're here, like you're real, like you love us, because you do. Would you do that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
two concepts that are going to frame Isaiah 40 as we walk through this. Um, Isaiah is, is a prophet that God sends to his people, his people who are wayward, his people that are like called by his name and they're there to um, obey him, they're to follow him, they're to worship him. But again and again and again, they're walking away from who God is. And God sends Isaiah to say, come back to me. Like, see me for who I really am. This is why you're going to be a judge. This is why you're going to be in trouble. This is why all these things are happening. And he's calling them back. And as he does in this chapter, God is speaking to his people and showing them some of who he is. And there's two main concepts that we're going to see here. One is the concept of transcendence, and the other is the concept of imminence. So transcendence means, like, it's something that's bigger. It's something that's greater, okay? So every, like, concept you can have about how big God is, he actually transcends that. He is transcendent. Um, Everything about how wise God could possibly be, he transcends that. He's transcendent beyond that. Everything about how moral or good or just or whatever category you put, God is the one that transcends all that. So we start in this place of the bigness of God. So here's how he he puts it um, in the beginning here. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Okay, the question comes. So a group of people that has stepped away from God and is doing things their own way, the question comes from Isaiah, like, who do you think has done this? So he starts with the the oceans of the world, okay? So he starts in a pretty big place. A place for me, like, that my favorite place in the entire world is on the beach, and I'm looking out at the ocean, and you're just seeing the, like, bigness of it. And there's something in my soul that's just hungry for standing in front of something so big like that, and, and kind of peaceful, but also stormy, and just, there's something so big about it. And Isaiah starts here, and he just says, okay, I want you to think about God for a second. Think about who took the oceans of the world? What I see when I'm on the, 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 the shore is like massive. But what I see is so tiny compared to the oceans of the world, right? That's a whole lot of water, okay? And he's saying, who's took that water and kind of poured some into the palm of his hand and then dumped it in and that became the oceans? Think about God as massive like that, just measuring out the oceans like that. Think of the night sky, looking up. He's measured the night sky with a span. It's like a hand's width. And just think, okay, how big, how infinite, how like far-reaching, like we'll never see the ends of it kind of a thing. And yet God's just kind of like, yeah, that'll, that'll do. That'll like keep them busy sending their satellites and whatever, like for, for all of eternity. They'll never get to the end of it. That'll be enough. The dust of the earth, it's like God taking a measuring cup. He's like, do I give a, a one cup or a half cup? Like, yeah, this will work. Here's all the land and the continents of the earth, just pushing it out. Um, the mountains of the earth, the Himalayas, the Rockies, the Andes, and they're just God kind of weighing on the scales like, yep, that's the right amount. Let's make these mountain ranges. All this is meant to get us into this place where we just see, look up and see, okay, there is a God that is so much bigger than we are. We think we're so big. We think we understand so much. We think that, um, that, that our world matters so much, and he's just pulling us back to say, hey, think about a God who is transcendent, that all this stuff is so tiny to the God who simply made it in this small scale for him, massive scale for us. I think when we, the idea of a transcendent God, when I stand on the ocean, uh, the the, um, beach there, and I look out the ocean, there's a part of me that's just hungry for that transcendence. And sometimes I think it's like, I wish that I were bigger, you know? I wish that I was like bigger and could handle like the weight of life better. I wish I was wiser to figure out what to do in this situation. I wish that I was like more winsome so that I could handle these relational dynamics. And um, I want to kind of transcend my situation and be bigger. But I think what's actually happening when I stand 
there on the shore, and I'm looking out at this big thing. There's something about that where I'm like, I know I'm designed to be, not to be transcendent myself, but I'm designed to be in a relationship with something or someone who is transcendent. Like it feels good to stand there and recognize how tiny I am in comparison to the big thing because I think theologically that's how I was made, right? God is big and he made me to be small, but to be in a relationship to him who's the big God. I think that is the invitation of seeing him as this big picture, this ultimate reality. There's this um, uh, uh, philosophers, apologists, all these kinds of things. They, they come up with these arguments for how do you prove that God exists? And one of them is the, what's called the ontological argument, which goes like this, and it's a little esoteric, but it's like um, if you think of the, the greatest being that you could possibly imagine existing, that being is God, okay? And, and he has to exist because if you think of like God by definition is the greatest. So if you think of something like a little bit bigger and better than what you just thought of, well, that's what God's actually like. And the whole point of it is just to say God is the most transcendent thing in the universe. As, a, as an argument, it, it kind of works and it kind of doesn't. It really just depends on who you're talking to or how you're feeling. But that whole thing of like, think of how big God is and then like times it by a thousand and God is still way bigger than all that. I think all of this is this reminder that that, Isaiah starts us with, if you're going to think about God, first start by thinking huge. He is so much bigger than we imagine. But he goes on from there. Verse 13, now he's going to talk about God as wise and as a judge, ultimately. So verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here now he's talking about God, and God is the one that, like, all, all of us, like, a, the, the wisest one in here would be a fool to not take counsel from somebody else, right? It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much you figured it out. you got to take advice from somebody else because you're missing something. God is the only being in the universe for whom asking counsel from somebody else would make him more foolish. Does that make sense? He is wise. He is wisdom itself. He knows all things, and he sees how it all fits together, and he knows the, the good, beautiful plan of, of everything and how he's fit it together. So he is wise. He needs no counselor. And so here he is. He's the one that knows it all. And all of his ways are just. Like, like everything about him, like nobody taught him the path of justice. No one gave him knowledge. He knows what's just and what's unjust. He knows how it all works together. He knows how to make every piece fit together. In, in a world right now where we're like, crying out for justice in a lot of ways, and we've really wrestled with that. One thing we've seen is that the human heart is wired for justice. And when we see injustice, we're, we're, we're getting quicker to say, that's not right. It should not be that way. And I think we're right to cry out like that. The problem we keep encountering is that when we cry out for justice, we have differing definitions of what justice means. The problem with that is we are just so dang small, right? And our perspectives are so very limited. But God himself is just. He knows what justice is. His perspective is right. He's the standard by which justice is defined. And so here he is, and he, everything that he does is like a just thing. And, and so he's the one that has to guide us into what justice actually looks like. Um, we think we know, but we don't. He is the one that, that is. Now, what comes with that is the idea of God being the judge. He created reality as we know it. He's the basis for it. If he doesn't exist, nothing exists. And so he's the basis for all of our reality it also makes him the judge of who's right and who's wrong. And this is where it gets uncomfortable in our modern age because we all just kind of want to be right and we want to let each other like, like, hey, you've got a different idea of how it should work. Hey, that's great. That can be true also. But if God is ultimate reality and if he's the one that knows it all and if he is infinitely wise and if he is the just judge, then concepts like 
judgment or even wrath or concepts like hell, like they, they fit within that framework of a God that like knows how the world's designed to be. And, and so when a person comes and God is reality and he's goodness and he's truth and he's beauty all personified in this massive being, and we come and say, I don't want that. I want to live a different way. Like we should expect life to begin falling apart when we're living out of sync with reality. Like that's just how it works. And we should expect it not to be fine for us to say, Sure, yeah, God, you infinite, wise, all-powerful being, you'd like things done this way, but I think it'd be better like this. Um, we should expect there to be consequences, both natural consequences where everything falls apart, and for God to say, no, that's not what's best for you. That's not what's best for your neighbor. That's not what's best for society. To me, that's how the concepts of wrath and judgment make sense in that big picture of it's a God who just fills all of the space with not just his, like, whims, but his wisdom and his goodness and his power, like all of these things are true about who God is. He's a God that hates evil and sin, but he's also, as we'll see in a minute, he's a God who is so quick to um, invite us to, to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to be healed. A couple more things before we uh, shift gears here. Um, we see him as the highest being. So in verse, um, the ber- verse 15 here, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Like here we're getting this picture of like every impressive thing that's ever existed in the world. Okay, think of like what's, what's the biggest, like think of nations, think of empires, think of dynasties. And it's just... These are the biggest things. And he's just saying, like, all of that, take any dynasty, any empire, any nation, and it's just like a drop in a bucket for me. Like, comparatively, it is so much smaller than we think. I'm certain that God is, like, looking down, and he sees Russia, and he sees Putin trying to make Russia just a little bit bigger and a little bit grander by adding Ukraine back in forcibly. And God's just like, you absolute fool. You have no idea how tiny and insignificant you are and what you're trying to do to boost your ego or whatever. It's so foolish. Like God is over the whole thing and it's all just this thing that he says, just, it's less than nothing. It's just so insignificant. Everything, every time we get stressed about a presidential election and we think like, what are we going to do if someone out different is sitting in that Oval Office, right? This ruler of this nation who has all these checks and balances on him, like, what are we going to do? And God's just like, you guys have no idea how small you're, now we're, we're fine to care about things. We should fight for, for what's right and good and better. Like all those things were invited into a process in the U.S., but we need this zoom out um, frequently, regularly, so that we can see like what matters ultimately is there's this high, beautiful being over it all. He's the king of it all. Look at, look at what it goes on to say in the next uh, few verses. Jump down to verse 22 here. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem, stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. This, this picture of, think of, um, think of a ruler, a king, an emperor, or something boasting about his throne room or his oval office or, or something, right? And God's just like, oh yeah, well like, the earth is this little sphere. Um, sorry, Kyrie, it's kind of, it's spherical. You know, it's in the Bible. And, uh, and he, he sits above it. He's like, you've got your cute little throne room and here's mine. And I kind of take the heavens and I'm like, 
yeah, that'll work as like a backdrop for me sitting on my throne. Like here is the true king over this whole thing. And he's picturing the idea of um, human beings are like grasshoppers. And I've, I've loved this image of human beings like grasshoppers. Because just think like for a human being, like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like a little taller, bigger than average, I suppose. But I'm like not that different than average. But a grasshopper, to me, is just like tiny, right? So small. And just think of a grasshopper trying to describe a human being standing there, right? Like, boy, he's so huge. Man, he can move so quickly. He's so strong. He can move all these things, right? And just picturing a grasshopper trying to describe what a human being is is sort of kind of like what a human being trying to describe an all-powerful God must be like. We're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's wise. Like, he knows all the facts about things. Like, he's smarter than Google, you know? Um, and we, but we have no idea how much there is to know about God that we don't even have the beginning. Like, we don't even have the questions to ask about who God is. And we can talk about him being really powerful, um, but we have no idea the extent to which he is all these things. And so there's this sense in which, man, like, the night sky is his tent. Every, everyone that thinks we're important comes to nothing. I think that the, the idea I'm getting from all this is the most pathetic thing in the universe to God must be a human being who thinks that they're important. You know? Just that thought of us just, like, sitting here being, like, um, like <laughs> really accomplished something great today. You know, like, oh, boy, I've really, like, got it together. I'm getting a lot more followers on social media or whatever. Any time that we're just like, man, look at me, God's like, oh, you have no idea how much you're embarrassing yourself in the big picture. So we get this picture of the grandeur of God, but here's where it begins to shift. And I love the way that it shifts because we shift from the transcendence of God, of seeing how big he is and how great, and we have to always maintain that. And we begin to shift into seeing now how imminent God is, which means how near he is, how close at hand he is. It's kind of like saying God is both infinitely big and infinitely small, although you have to be careful with any theological word of what you talk about with God, but he is so close to all of us. So watch how he makes this turn in the next couple of verses. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And so he's basically starting by just saying, you cannot compare me to anybody. The thing, the thing we know about God is he's incapable of being compared to anything. There's no apples to apples with God. There's, there's only just kind of metaphors and just these like wild guesses or, or images of like, he's kind of like this, but he's also way different than that, right? That's the best that we can do. And he's saying, you can't compare me to anything. And he invites us to, we're still, we're still in this transcendence phase invites us to just look at the stars and just be like, who made all of these? Now, now we're in like this really like in exciting moment in history where we are like actually exploring the stars. You know, we have satellites that are just going for like decades, just flying off and sending back these like stunning images and finding things out. We, we actually have, um, it's like one of the things I'm most excited about in our church. There's a lot of things I'm excited about, but we have um, a man in our church, Alan Meyer, who like literally is working on designing the, some of the Mars rover type stuff. It's like incredible. Like in theory, his fingerprints are on Mars right now. Like that's a crazy thought. And so we're going and we're sending these things out everywhere, right? And so he's, but he says, look at the stars and consider those. The thing that we're learning as we explore space more and more is how very, very, very little we know, right? And how cool that we've sent something to the, absolute closest planet to us, right? But there's other planets that are much farther that are harder to reach. And then there's other galaxies and it just goes beyond. So he's, he's pulling our eyes up and he's just saying, look, um, look at the stars, look at the heavens. And that must have meant something really cool to people of Isaiah's days. Man, look at these stars. But now that we know so much more about the stars, we know how little we know and how much more massive it is than anyone could ever have dreamed. 
And as you look up at that, he's saying, look, consider this. Consider how big I am. But watch what he says um, at the end of verse 26. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his power, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What I love about this is we're getting this picture of a God who is like big and powerful and invites us to look at his bigness. Why? So that we can see that every one of those stars that's so massive, every single one he knows. He knows the name of every single star. Because he's so strong, not a single one of those is missing. It's not just about the bigness with God. It's not just about how vast and how much more impressive he is. It's also the fact that he is intimately uh, involved in his knowledge and his connection to every single thing that he's made. And that means us. We're going to see that in the verses ahead. It's a shift from a God who is um, transcendent to this God who is imminent. He knows all these things. Look at what it goes on um, to talk about. I love this passage so much. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by God? So, so he's looking at Israel, uh, who has this big God, and he's looking at them, and he's just saying, why are you guys talking like like, why doesn't God know what's going on with me? He's like, how foolish can you be? Yes, God is massive. But it's crazy to think that that massive big God doesn't know what's happening with you. And, and this works both ways, right? Like, they're, they're going away from God. Like, ah, God doesn't know. He doesn't care what I'm doing. And he's like, oh yeah, God knows. And he cares. And he's calling you back, right? But also, when we suffer and when we're hurting, and these people were going through a lot of that, why do you think, oh, God doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know my pains and my hurts. And he's like, why are you saying that? Because look at what it says. Verse 28 now. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So we're getting this picture of like wisdom and power, right? This big picture God who's above all else. And he's just saying like, like why do you think God doesn't know? God knows everything. God is more powerful than everything. Again, we're getting transcendence. But why? Why are we getting a picture of God's wisdom and transcendence? Because he is this loving father to us. So here's what he does with that glory and that power and that wisdom that he has. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This, to me, is the coolest part of the whole thing. Yes, God is big, and we are invited constantly to see how massive he is, but sometimes we get fearful. We feel like God's cold and distant. We feel like he's just waiting for us to mess up, and this whole thing is saying, look at how big God is and how, how like majestic and above everything he is, and because he's that, he's there and present and ready and close to help you. You who just get tired. The fact that God cares when I'm tired is crazy, but that's literally what it says in this passage. God cares if you're exhausted. That's what this passage is saying. The God who created it all has infinite strength so that he can help you when you're exhausted. That is a beautiful picture, a beautiful reminder of how much God cares. The, the idea that like even youths faint and become weary, right? I, I used to read that and be like, yeah, I, I'm super young and I do sometimes get tired. This is really relevant. Now I'm at a point where I'm like, yeah, boy, I'm getting a lot more tired than I used to be. And from what I've heard, it only just keeps getting worse with that exhaustion all the time. And yet here's this God that's for us. So I think sometimes we get a big picture of God and we're like, man, God the Father, he's so big, he's so good, he's so righteous, he's so just. And we just think like, I'm going to be crushed by him. And this was, we, we feel like our inadequacy so much. This was what um, 
Martin Luther wrestled with. Martin Luther was um, a uh, Roman Catholic monk um, during the, the, like, right before the Reformation. God used Martin Luther and others to spark this Reformation, and he was a monk in the Catholic Church, and they were doing things like, um, if you've sinned, like, it's okay, you can just, like, pay enough money and God will forgive your sins. Or like if you sin, like it's not great, but like if you pray these prayers or you do the right things, then like God will forgive you. And there was this sense of God's righteousness and his justice and we're all awful and make sure you give us all of your money for our building projects. That's kind of like how things were going at the time. And Martin Luther was in that and he would read the phrase in the Bible about the righteousness of God. And it was just this, this thing he's like, I, he's like, he says, I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, because it's like, yeah, we get it. We know you do everything right. And I'm the one that's always messing up. And he felt this sense of just alienation and I can never live up. I can't follow even the church's system of trying to get back to as good as you are, God. And he hated that phrase. And it was this oppression to his soul. The bigness of God was this oppression until he realized he's reading Romans 3 and he sees this picture of the righteousness of God, not as something that God holds over our head of I'm righteous and you're not. He sees this, this depiction of God's righteousness as this sense of like God is faithful and he's good and he's right to do what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is offer that righteousness to us. Like he saw finally this connection between the transcendence and the eminence and became less about you're big and I'm inadequate and it became more I'm strong and you're weak and I'm here to help you. I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to give, like, be righteous so that I can give my righteousness to you, to invite you in, to, to reconcile and to heal you. And it's just a completely different view of who God is. It's still zooming out as much as we can. There's no way you can have an adequate view of how big and glorious and good and righteous and just God is. You can never get there to, to express fully how much that is. But these phrases are so important for us to see. He also is this father to us. Jesus taught us to pray. When we pray to God, we pray, hallowed be your name, like your name is holy. But before even that, he says, pray like this, our father. Not just like for Jesus saying, my father, God's my father. That's part of him being the Trinity, God the father, God the son. So he's his father. But he teaches us to pray, our father. Like this God who, who can do it all and does it all and is perfect is our dad. Like that's what it's saying. It's this really beautiful marriage of power and care um, mixed together, transcendence and eminence. And so what we're told to do, we're not called in this passage to impress God. We're not called to do better so that God will respond like that, not perform as well as he does. What we're called to do is to wait for him. God is our father. He's up above, he's high, and he's exalted. So wait for him. And if you wait for him, he will give you strength. He doesn't tell us to become stronger. He tells us to wait for the Lord, and he will give us the strength to continue moving, to continue running. If we're just seeing God as distant and cold, then we're misseeing him. And I want to back up just a little bit. Before he said any of this, in Isaiah 40, he talked about God as our shepherd. And so it says this in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them that are young. So this picture, this reminder of God is, yes, all these big things, but before he's even that, he's this loving shepherd. He's this loving father. He, he's, the, he's the God of Psalm 23 that invites us to see, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? There's nothing that I'm going to be lacking. He leads me beside these green pastures. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, and I don't have to fear anything because he's with me. These pictures of a God who is so powerful come married to this concept of a God that is like a shepherd. He's like a father, and he's just there with us, nurturing, gathering, collecting us. 
We can't think about God as our father without thinking about God as the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. As Jesus is talking about, here's what it looks like for God to be your father. There was the son that ran off and he went and lived the way that he wanted to live. Didn't care if the dad was alive or dead. Just, I'm going to go do what I want to do. And the father, instead of being um, stern and angry and all these things, what he did is as soon as he saw his son ready to let go of that, he was running out to meet him. That is the picture this is not human optimism. This is not us saying, boy, I sure wish God was nicer. I, I see a lot of that today in like theological stuff. of like, yeah, some of that wrath stuff, some of that hell stuff, some of that judgment stuff is kind of harsh. Let's, let's uh, God, God's cool with whatever, you know? There's a lot of that sentiment. But this is different because this is God describing himself. And he's saying to us, yeah, I'm big. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, I know it all and I'm the one that's wise. And it's him saying, I'm like a father to you. And what that means is that the moment that you're ready to come, my heart is for you and I'm running to gather you. Yes, I am like, I am God that's all powerful and I'm a shepherd. That means I'm ready to just gather you up. Yes, I see you, my child. You're exhausted and you're wearing yourself out in many cases with things that shouldn't exhaust you, that shouldn't wear you out. It's because you're, you're not living in sync with who I am. And yet God comes in those situations and he says, I'm a shepherd. I'm going to give you my strength. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to help you to run and to fly even because I'm giving you all these things. It's a beautiful reminder of, of what he is as our father. T talking about our God our, our, as our father, I found is like, is tricky, okay? Because um, we have human fathers, okay? And human fathers sometimes are incredible, um, and sometimes they're really terrible. And now that I'm a father, I kind of see that, right? I'm trying to be like a good example of what a father is to my, to my girls. Um, but I see like, okay, I did my best, but my girls have an example of a father that's often great and sometimes is definitely not so great, right? You, you cannot be this perfect picture. So we all have this baggage that we carry in. But when we see pictures like this of who God is saying he is towards us, it helps us reframe what it looks like. Okay, so what do we do? How do we process this? What I want to do is just invite us um, to respond to the idea that God is our Father. God the Father, like He is our Creator and all this stuff. And so I want us to see, like, what, however we process all this from here, I want us to remember that regardless of where you're at, regardless of what you've done, He loves you. And that is true of the Father's heart. He loves you. He invites you. He wants you to come to Him. He wants to gather you up. Let's make sure that we don't forget those things. I want us to see here this invitation to wait on the Lord and to receive his strength. He is a dad that's just waiting to help us out. I'm, I'm a grown man, and I do my own projects around my house, but there's times where it's like um, I invite my dad to come. My dad's old and, and uh, retired and all that, but, like, there's certain projects that I want to do at my house that, like, I need my dad there, you know? And there's even, embarrassingly, there's even, like, certain bolts and things that I just can't, like, loosen, and it's like, Dad... And he has this old man strength that's stored up in there somewhere that he just gets that thing off. It's like, all right, you know. Um, and he's just so willing and loves to come and help me with things, right? Th this, is, this is our father. This is who he is. He sees us and he sees us in our weakness and he wants to give us strength. And so I want us to develop the sense of like seeing him in his greatness, um, not just so that he can hold it over us, but so that he can uh, be uh, an aid to us and be the one that gives us strength. I want us to be able to stay calibrated to God. So as we talk about the, the justice and, and, um, and judgment and those things of God, like though they're hard to talk about, they're hard concepts to sit with and be at peace with. But I think the reality is it's, it's just like staying calibrated in tune with who he is. He designed this world. It works according to his design, according to his character. And so when we listen to him, we're trying to come back and be calibrated. And he's saying, don't do this. It's not because he's trying to be 
a jerk, it's because he's saying, this is how the world functions. This is who I am. If you live this way, it will legitimately be better for you and for your brothers and sisters um, and for like the universe. If you live this way, it's going to be better. And if not, if we're rejecting him, um, whether it's completely or in a specific way, um, things fall apart and there are consequences to that. It's hard to talk about, but it's true. And so the reminder, just stay calibrated to him, contemplate who he is. And finally, the last thing I want to say um, as we kind of get ready to, to sing here is um, I, I, I so deeply want this not to be something where we think about God, where it just fills our brains and we, we write the, the theology book and we get our doctrine in order. It has to be something that touches our hearts. And to do that, it has to be something where we sit with God, where we process with God, where we, we get to know him as a person because he is, in fact, a person. And so I think about it like this. I, there was a place when I was in college, Laura and I dated all through college, and there was this place where on certain days of the week, I knew that if I sat here on this corner, um, high likelihood that Laura's going to come through on that date. And so I would sit there. Other times I'd come out and see Laura sitting there, and it's like, oh, funny meeting you here, you know. Um, and we get to spend time together, and it was part of, like, fostering our relationship. I would love for us to have a place like that with God as we talk about these things. So week by week, this is that place for you. Like, come and sit with God. It's not going to be about just hearing. It's like, I want to be here with you, Lord. He's here, and he's waiting for us. I also want to challenge you to, to find that place at home, find that place at work, find that place in your car while you're processing where it's like, I know that I can meet God here, and so I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to wait for the Lord. Pete Scazzaro says it like this. He says, silence and stillness before God is not doing nothing. It is sitting on the Father's lap as a content child, developing, deepening, learning, trust, and love. There are few things more important to do in the world. So I think he's right. Just the idea of let's get our conception of God right, but let's make sure that we just sit in it too, right? And we just contemplate him and we intentionally reach out and say, God, I know that you're there. I know that you love me. I know that you're, you're calling these stars by name. You know my name. You know everything about what I'm going through. Um, would you be here with me and would you speak to me? That's, that's my prayer. And we're going to um, continue to worship now. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these reminders of who you are. You were so big. You were so infinite. You were so glorious. You were so good. I pray, Lord, that as we um, sing these songs, Lord, I pray that you'd meet us where we're at. And Lord, some of us are, are just so eager to declare the goodness of, of who you are and your praise. And others of us, Lord, have been distant and cold for a while. Lord, please just allow us to respond authentically to you. Um, Lord, every, every word that we can utter to you, um, whether it's a lot or a little, um, whether it's a prayer of bold declaration of your goodness or whether it's just a, a cry for help right now, Lord, would you just be with us in that, Lord, meet us. Thank you that you are a God who is so good, who is so big, who is so great, and who loves so relentlessly. Um, what a gift to be known by a God like you. May you be glorified in our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.